Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first evening of Wednesday Night Football. I'm Theo Ash. I've got Ollie Connolly along with me. This is a new project of mine, a bit of a passion project. Every single season there are oh, no, games that fall through the cracks. Entire teams can fall through the cracks in terms of national media coverage. And this is just a little podcast to try to cover some of the teams that maybe don't get so much coverage throughout the course of the year. Um, just one game. I'll break down whatever I deem to be the most forgettable game of the previous week with a guest. This week's guest is Ali Connolly. He is the first one, and I knew he had to be the first one when I got a notification on my phone in like June or July that he had written 10,000 words on the 2022 Patriots offense on the wonderful read option, read optional substack. So I can't think of anybody better to break down boring, forgettable football games. Ali, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, big fan of your work, so delighted to be on the, the premiere episode. Um, yeah, I, I also couldn't think of someone else better on, frankly, to, to sift through the weeds of, of Sunday's most forgettable action. And for this debut episode, it's pretty easy to pick an interesting game. I think as this podcast goes on, it'll get harder and harder. But all the games week one come with plenty of intrigue. But there was one that I thought didn't get too much coverage. It was a noon game. It was a heavy favorite that covered the spread, but still played a little sloppy. It's Baltimore versus Houston, a 25 to nine game. Houston didn't score any touchdowns. Pretty easy win for Baltimore, but Lamar only scored five points for my fantasy team. Uh, tweeted about how he was rusty. So not a ton of coverage for this one, but tons of interesting storylines. Stroud's debut, Munkin in, in this new offense for Baltimore. So let's get right into it. And I, I want to start with, with Munkin and his offense. And before we get into the details, like in the macro, Ali, what did you notice about this offense and how it was different and maybe in some instances similar to what they were running under Greg Roman? Yeah, I think that this is probably the most intriguing schematic storyline of the whole season. Frankly, maybe you could go Anthony Richardson in Indianapolis, how they bed him, and maybe you can write 10,000 words you said on Bill O'Brien and what he's going to bring to the Patriots. But Todd Munkin coming with the most unique talent I think we have in football in Lamar Jackson and trying to figure out what is the best offense for Lamar Jackson. How can you wed some of the kind of power spread, spread to run principles that are spread all throughout the league. The smash mouth spread is the, the way everyone wants to run offense in the league today, right? If they have a dual threat at quarterback. And how can you tr keep some of the magic of the Greg Roman run game? I mean, that was the most sophisticated, interesting, intriguing, creative, complex run game in the entire NFL. They just bludgeoned people with it for years, right? It was almost impossible to defend. They were so creative with fullback, tight end hybrid, what they would do with receivers in the blocking game how they would pull and move linemen what jackson could do in terms of the optionality of the offense so you want to try and keep as much of that as you possibly can but then by doing what greg roman did right you wound up in these kind of one by one static sets that completely constipated the passing game so trying to fuse those two things is a problem that um we're seeing with kevin stefanski in cleveland right how do you wed a really option-based run game with a more traditional bespoke passing game for your quarterback. So I think we saw a lot of what I expected, which was more spread, less bunched up formations in terms of in the backfield. One of the big issues Roman had is his offense was so option heavy post snap for the receivers to try and get away with this thing of we only have two guys out in the route. We only have three guys out in the route. It was, well, we have all this space to play with. So let's put as much optionality into the offense as possible for those guys. It was almost a 360 option. On every single play for those guys and what wound up happening was a lack of chemistry they had a ton of injuries there's not as much practice time as they used to be and they were, there was just terrible spacing in the offense so Munkin arrives trying to get better spacing in the offense deload the box through formation to try and keep Jackson there and I think the main thing that jumped out to me was them kind of standing by their word which was remove some of the post snap options outside of the run game with the run actions and keeping some RPOs but eliminating some of the route tree optionality and allowing him to have more pre-snap command, right? So it's getting to the right play pre-snap, but you'll know where everyone's supposed to be with functional spacing post-snap with an intent, I think, to say to Lamar, you play quicker. You can play quicker from the pocket. And then if you want to call your own shot and take off, have at it. And the field should be spread for you when you decide to do that. 
So that to me was kind of the macro element of what they were trying to do. There were issues within there, I thought. I thought his command and control of the offense was a little off. I think that's going to take some time. Now, he did this at Louisville, so I think he'll get there. But there was tons of instances where they were getting to the wrong plays. Guys didn't know what the play plays were. The running back was busting the play. The play clock was getting down to four or five seconds. You could see everyone panicking, being like, oh, no, we haven't got the play in yet. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, we haven't switched. You've got, he's got to switch every single person, essentially, in what they're running, rather than, like, one call for everyone. And so you could see them being like, oh, we've really messed up the play clock here, trying to get to the perfect play. So that, I think there was a lot of like operational issues in the offense and the macro stuff is just going to take time. You know, fusing those two ideals is a really difficult, complex game. I don't think anyone's really probably cracked it yet outside of maybe the Eagles um, and they do it a little bit differently anyway. So that's a long-winded way of saying like, they tick the box of kind of what I wanted to see. I thought it was going to be a mess for about six, seven weeks anyway. And with what the AFC North is like, it's like just try and survive those six, seven weeks until the thing maybe starts clicking. Yeah, and I thought they performed better as the game went along too. Uh, that was one thing that I thought was promising. But you're right, there was a, a big blitz and Ronnie Stanley didn't even get out of his stance and then Lamar had to throw it away and it was intentional grounding. I thought there were still some issues with the route spacing, but you know that wasn't designed. You know That was probably miscommunication. There was a play that... Looked a little bit like it could have been Hank, where there was a tight end sitting down over the ball a little bit, maybe past the sticks. But then there were two digs going right towards him, and everybody congregated in the middle of the field. And then there were two slant. It just didn't work out very well. So, yeah, definitely some some sloppiness, definitely some some rust, like Lamar tweeted about. But. I, I liked it overall. I thought all the receivers, and that's another thing I want to talk about. You know, on paper the receivers looked great, but how would they translate to game action? Um, I thought it it looked pretty good in that area. Like Zay Flowers, the design touches to him all went amazing. I mean, he looked like Debo tier with the ball in his hands, not in quite the same way, but the spin move he hit at the beginning of the game to the, the to the left they got him the ball twice in a row first time it went nowhere second time he strung a couple moves together that were fantastic how do you think uh how would you rate the receiving core obviously zay had a big game but in terms of routes down the field odell coming back uh rashad bateman coming back from injury do you think that it looked like they had enough juice yeah, I think obviously Zay is going to be the, the juice guy, right? He looks like mm-hmm. he can be pretty special, as you said, with the ball in his hand. I think Bateman is probably the most intriguing one. I think with where Odell's at now, I'd really like to see him just closer to the formation more and more and giving him more kind of two-way goes once he's out in the route. Mm-hmm. I think him using his intellect, you saw how McVeigh used him in LA. That was a lot of what they did. Two-man stacks, him up in the bunch and let him go find space on his own. I would like that for Odell. And then it comes down to Bateman, where a lot of that offense is going to be three by one. The backside guy has to win. If that guy don't win, we're in big trouble just kind of with the the way the shell's going to work. So that that is a huge demand on a player who's yet to show that. I actually really like him as a player. I think he's really intelligent, and it's never quite come together for him yet because of the injuries. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty bullish on the three of them of how they can all kind of cross position and jump into different parts of the formation, I, I think it can be pretty effective. Yeah, I, I thought Bateman, there was the, the out-of-structure play with Lamar rolling right. He found a little bit of space against the cover four. You know, Perryman got lost, and, and they were able to hit him. And then on the pick, actually, Bateman was running a post. The safety cut it off, and then he cut up field, which I thought was a really smart move by him. So out-of-structure, like, if that trust can get developed, because I agree, I really loved him coming out of Minnesota. Um, route running, like catch radius, the whole the whole nine yards. I thought Bateman was really good, and the the Ravens are my all agenda team. You know, I love J.K. Dobbins, I love Odell, I love Bateman, like I love Lamar. Every it's every film nerd's like dream <laughs> offense. It's just like, can you stay healthy? Uh, was and, and the film nerd's play caller, right? Mungin yes. has arrived at a time when it's like everything he's wanted to do in his whole life the league has moved to a point where it's like oh it's ready for you to let like take over now that's why it should be such a wonderful like lay the blueprint down do whatever you want to do and the league has developed in such a way that you should catch fire pretty quickly so i'm i'm really hopeful for them yeah yeah i i am too and i thought 
Odell played a little bit of an, uh, an old man's game. I thought that there were some, he got Stingley one time uh, with a kind of a hezzy release and Stingley bit on it and then he was able to go. Probably can't outrun Stingley at this point in his career, but like little things like that, little subtle things I like to see from Odell. The adjustment to the ball on that deep shot towards the end was beautiful. You know, Zay looked pretty good and, and Bateman had his moments as well. So without Mark Andrews, I think that the wide receivers stepped up. Um, one more thing, question about – or go ahead. The go thing ahead. that they're going to need, I think, Theo, is, you know, to run that style of system they want, you need to really be an empty somewhere between 12 and 15% of the game. Um, you want to be playing five out with the six-man threat being Lamar. That's how you're going to be able to mm -hmm. spread to run. You want to bring the big personnel in, and then you want to split it out, which is what the Eagles do to, to crush everyone, which is where that power spread world is living in. They only ran empty on two snaps. And Lamar Jackson is already one of the most, one of the best empty plays in the history of the game, statistically. Yep. Like his yards per attempt, every every EPA per play, everything you want to go through from empty, he crushes people as a passer, let alone giving him the room to take off as a runner. So them not building that in when you've got those three guys is a little bit confusing to me, particularly against a team where you would expect, and I know we're going to come on to them, that you would have anticipated preseason they're probably going to play with three linebackers on the field more than everyone else. They didn't wind up doing that, but that would be the expectation. You would want to string those guys out anyway, right? Even the guys that did play, you would just think as a staff, like, let's make sure we're stringing all those guys out. If we can put our three receivers on islands with those guys, and we've got Lamar as a running threat from empty, that would have been like 20% of my game plan. So I was a bit confused as to why they only ran two snaps of it all game. Yeah, I'm trying to think of why that could be. I mean, maybe just year week one, they wanted to run the football a lot or wanted a, the threat of running the football a lot just to keep things on schedule. Didn't want to put too much in Lamar's hands, reading things out like first game new offense against a, an easy opponent. I I, I, I agree, I, but I don't, I don't quite understand. But let's talk about that Texans defense because I thought that they – especially at the beginning of the game, looked pretty good. Uh, week one, year one under D'Amico. Um, how do you think the offense changed from last year, or how similar is it to San Francisco? Again, like macro thoughts here. What were your main points on the new look Texans defense? On the defense, I was uh, delighted to see he didn't just stick with like, a, hey, I'm playing 4-3 and I can make Christian Harrison to Fred Warner. That was one of my big pivot points of the season. Mm -hmm. that they played The Texans played more 4-3 than anyone last year. They just got crushed. They couldn't cover anyone from, from that setup. They couldn't defend the run very well either, frankly. From that look, um, when they had Harris on the field, they were something like 28th in EPA per play. When he was off the field, they were like 16th in EPA per play. That's how like submarining to a defense he was just living. He was really, really <laughs> bad last year. He was terrible. All the linebackers were, but we'll get into that. He was horrifying, and I think he was targeted on like 62, 62 snaps out of like 280 or something. So like everyone knew. It was like game on. <laughs> if he's on the field, you throw at him, we, we just crush them. So I was a bit concerned with that because in San Francisco, he had the cleanest split defense in the league. We are four, we are two, we are five. There's those yep. are the levels. And then when we can go four, three, like no one else can and stay in base, we've got the freak of all freaks, and it basically feels like we're playing a nickel. So I was a little bit concerned that he would bring that same style and just try and redo the Robert Sala thing in New York, which took him a year to get right, right? Um, and instead, he was a bit more malleable, a bit different. And the big, big thing that jumped out to me was not necessarily the volume of blitzing. I think they were up in like 20% or something like that, which is out of his norm. But he doesn't have mm -hmm. both, so he doesn't have those guys. It was the, the pressure paths. The distinctive style that he was throwing different kind of blitzes and pressures out that he had never run before in his life. Right, mm -hmm. he, they brought a casino blitz where, which is like you bring all the white guys. It's like basically they they call it that because it's a roller dice because you're expecting to get completely torched. And it's, and this is against Lamar Jackson. But as you said, new offense, new protection, so much new communication for him. He was like, I'm gonna bring the house with new looks, overload pressures, things I don't normally run because I think I need to juice my pass rush a little bit. And I think they've got a lot going on with their new communication setup that we can get home before he can get the ball off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were there was a lot of blitzing, and I, I liked it. And especially at the beginning of the game, I thought the Texans' defensive line was was wrecking shop. Grenard had a pretty good first half. Second half, he wasn't quite as active. I thought Will Anderson, who we'll talk about, had an entire game that was fantastic. Malik Collins can bring plenty of juice. So getting those one-on-one -on -one situations, like they were winning plenty of them, even versus their best linemen, like Ronnie Stanley, I thought, got off to a slow start as well. Um, and... 
yeah, like you're saying, the pressure pads were really interesting. There was a play late in the game where Will Anderson looped from one side of the line all the way around, uh, like Jalen Carter at Georgia. And I was like, I don't remember Nick Bosa doing anything quite like that. (laughs) That's severe, like with the distance he had to cover, put a little bit of pressure on Lamar. But uh, it was interesting because, you know, when he was in San Francisco, he he basically helped coin the single mugger phaser in, right? We're going to put a single, four guys as wide as possible, a huge split front, drop Mm -hmm. a single mugger somewhere. The theory being for the listeners, that means I am setting your protection for you. I know what you, where your protection is going to be because I've dropped a mugger into this five guys on the line of scrimmage. You don't know if he's coming. You don't know if he's dropping. I will set your protection. And by knowing your protection, I can wreck shop by running twists and all that games and all that kind of stuff, right? I know basically what you're going to be dropping into protection-wise. And teams have tried to find different ways to deal with this. And almost everyone has copied that in some way. He, he was doing that consistently, but he was bringing heat off that. That he wasn't, he was dropping the mugger out, but then bringing stuff from elsewhere that he's just mm-hmm. never done before. A lot more perimeter pressures, all that kind of stuff. So, that is a pretty interesting thing to track, I think, through the season, whether that was a Baltimore specific thing or whether it was him being like, hey, I'm the big man in charge now. I've been cut loose. I don't have to do what the Niners told me to do anymore. <laughs> right, right. Because that is just kind of a legacy thing that Salah started in, in, in San Francisco. They probably told D'Amico to, to run what Salah did, and they told, uh, oh, who's their current defensive coordinator from Car- Wilkes. Steve Wilkes. Yeah, yeah that Wilkes. was that was a wild job interview where they were like, here is our You play. run the secondary, yeah. we're running the, like, don't <laughs> yeah. even worry about the front seven. <laughs> don't even worry about it. So it was cool to see D'Amico cut loose and, and all those schemes, and I thought they mixed things up on the back end pretty well. A uh, good mix uh, of zone and different types of zone coverages uh, mixed in with man. Uh, we talked about how torched Christian Harris got last year. D'Amico, former linebacker, linebacker whisperer, was the was the reputation he had coming into Houston. Did you notice any instant dividends from Christian Harris in that linebacking core? Uh, not so. I, I think a lot of the credit for that, I think that they'll get a boost, you know, in ratings or rankings or wherever people do these things. I thought that that first level just crushed and leveled everything yep. that they, and even if they didn't win the rep necessarily, there's a lot of those guys falling on the floor, but they were just getting off so quickly. They were distorting the levels of the front. So it just makes it easier to play mop up duty, right? To either dance mm-hmm. around or, or to, to fill an open hole. I, I think that the, the one thing that did stand out compared to last year was one, they only had two of them on the field a lot of the time, which is very beneficial. Yep. And that Denzel Perryman is, he's just a veteran, right? He just gets guys to the right spot and they'd be so misaligned versus motion and stuff last season. They had a lot of young players yep. that just having a guy in there who knows what's up is oftentimes very beneficial when you're playing this new offense. Who's like being, you know, spending six weeks being like, we're putting all our cool new motions and shifts. And it's like, it's nice to just have a veteran who's like, this is where we are supposed to be stood at the snaps. That was the thing to me where they were just more consistent in where they were aligned. And then I thought their day was actually easier than it probably should have been. I didn't think there was a lot of like cool, creative stuff at the second level to blur things for them from the Ravens offense. And then their front played so well that it just made life much easier for them, particularly against the run. Yeah, I agree with the front point. Like it's it's easy to play linebacker when the first when the first level's cleaning up. <laughs> there was a there was a drive where the second team line was in for the Ravens. It was a little bit later in the game. Ravens marched down and scored. There was a play where Lamar manipulated Harris with his eyes and threw a dig to Bateman in behind him. You know, then this Houston defensive line, the starters are good. They don't have the depth that San Francisco had. So when that number two unit was on, and D'Amico does still like to, to rotate a decent amount, it sounds it seems like, on that front seven. Like, yeah, then the linebackers started to look a little, a little dicey again. But definitely a better performance than last year across the whole defense. And I want to highlight another specific guy in that front seven, and that was Will Anderson. Uh, playing in his first game, Ali, I know that he was your number one overall prospect in the class. I mean, he played fantastic. Yeah, That's, I'm feeling yeah. good about that. I'm feeling yeah, good. <laughs> you should be feel, I mean, Carter, I would add Carter, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah. But one and two, I mean, it was a pretty clear one and two. And man, like, let's just talk about the performance that Will Anderson had, and I'll let you take it away. Yeah, isn't it stunning when you get maybe the finest pass rusher in the last three years in college football who gets asked to do all the grunt work, all the crap three work? Three tech. Yeah, three tech, four I. Tennessee. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And as I said throughout the draft process, like I love that as an evaluator. It's like, oh, so he was willing to do it. And then mm-hmm. when he was allowed to cut loose, 
um, in the final stretch versus Tennessee where they were like, we are in big trouble. Let's maybe turn Will loose. And he was just out of his mind. It's like, I love that. He didn't mope. He didn't strop. He was like, yeah, I'm up for it, whatever the team needs. Now he comes to Houston. They're like, hey, we're going to let you do the thing that we're paying you all this money for. <laughs> so hopefully you can be one of the best in the league. And he is just such a unbelievable blend of smarts, talk, bend. And, and I, he wasn't always the greatest like dip and rip artist around the edge of Alabama. That's not how he wins. But go mm-hmm. and look at... Go and look at the top guys in the league now. Outside of Brian Burns, we don't have dip and rip guys anymore getting double-digit sacks. They're all speed-to-power guys. They are all get-off, rip-through, and go in-out, essentially, as in-out movers rather than dip and rip guys. And you want the threat of the running the arc, right? You want the old Khalil Mack, like, I could do that, but I'm still going to forklift my way through you. And I just think he's the perfect all-around package of what we're looking for in these, in these modern pass rushes. He's like the Tim Duncan of rookie edge rushers, like Mr. <laughs> Fundamental. The hand, ma- the hand placement is perfect every time, like week one, year one. Like first play of the game, just a perfect angle into the backfield to destroy the zone run from the backside. Like just smart, like you said. Just knows where to be, when to be there. Maybe Tim Duncan isn't the most apt comparison because Tim Duncan had all these like crazy post moves. And I don't think Will Anderson has like the buffet of pass rushing moves that like an Arden Key does or, or maybe some of these other pass rushers or even some of the other guys in this class. He doesn't maybe have like the spin of Will McDonald or the bend of Will McDonald or whatever, but just so, so solid and just came in, looked stronger than Morgan Moses, looked smarter, like looked like he had already studied this Todd Munkin offense for years and it was their first game. Like it was... Pretty pretty amazing to watch. So it, it was, yeah, and there still might be a top out cap end, right? That he's not like one of the five best rushes in the league. And when you take someone that high and you trade a pick, you want him to be one of the five best rushes in the league. But I'd be feeling pretty good because if that the game plan is to get to, as you said before, we're doing the NASCAR rotation, we we roll eight deep and we can cycle mm-hmm. guys in and out and he's on a forty five rep pitch count. Well, I that to me is like, can he just be one of you the most effective player on a championship caliber team? I think that he can wind up being that. They've got another really highly drafted guy, not a rookie, but in his second year, first year was kind of ruined by injuries, and that was Derek Stingley. Now, last year, Lovey Smith called him at the draft, and they picked him, and he said, how would you like to follow the number one receiver every time? That turned out to be a lie. They <laughs> Lovey had him playing in the flat in the in the Tampa 2 or cover 2 type of defense. Uh, not the case this week. Um, they had him kind of doing a little bit of everything uh, how would you rate his performance i was i had some concerns yeah i'm i'm pretty on the real concerned part yeah. now and i really like stingley coming i think everyone did i think we were caught up in the year before the then you go through the ak out you should try and talk yourself into where but the year before he was one of the most special plays in the mm-hmm. country and maybe we should have reflected more on the the final season i still think as a as a press and bail press and turn runner that he's got all the tools obviously we're just not living in an era where you're going to be able to run that for 60 snaps a game. No. So you have to be, you know, when he, there was a two-play sequence when he's up against Odell, where they, they bring uh, all-out pressure, essentially. It's one-on-one across the board. He just locks Odell down, right? And I know mm-hmm. Odell, as you said, has kind of got an old man game now, doesn't quite have the burst off the line anymore. Still, that's good. Very next play comes back. It's a deep turn the back play action shot to a comeback. He's playing off the ball. And he just doesn't move his feet very well. He doesn't have a great sense for he doesn't have a great sense or knack for playing in zone anyway, but his feet are really bad. And I never thought that would be a concern. I did think, you know, playing off the ball and coverage is different for him than playing press and trail coverage up at the line of scrimmage, even as a zone drop defender playing that way as he did often in college. But sinking off and trying to feel that and shuffle your feet, it's just a different environment. And it seems like he's way more comfortable in one and not in the other. And just the way they're playing, trying to rock and roll the rotations all the time, it's like you're going to have to have him play inside, outside, press and off. And those are th- difficult players to find. There's only so many mm-hmm. Darius Slays no. around. Right. And I just don't think he's he's Darius Slay. I think he's a guy who can do one thing. And playing bump and run coverage is really important. And maybe you play, you know, cover one 50% of the time on some weeks. That's, that's very likely. But if you are a press and trail artist and not a press and run all over the field artist and you can't drop off and play in six, four, all the other ones out in space, you are in big trouble. Because you're only really going to get... 12 15 20 snaps on some weeks where you're at your best and at his worst he's really really bad and i also thought all three baltimore touchdowns he 
could have stopped it and they ran right at him and he was not in a position to make any of those plays like the first one i think was pin pull they that was actually a really interesting play design they brought ronnie stanley out to be the tight end and they put likely at left tackle and they had ronnie stanley pin will anderson and then they pulled around and it worked later in the game they had isaiah likely pill will pin will anderson and will anderson spun out of it and made the tackle on the perimeter that was an interesting little wrinkle from Monk in there. It's not unheard of in the league to have a tight end as a tackle and a tackle as a tight end, but that was cool. But they got to the perimeter towards Stingley's side. Stingley like tried to come down and make the tackle, and Dobbins ran right by him. I think the second touchdown, Odell was in close to the formation, and then he blocked down, and I think it's the corner's job to fill in those situations. Yeah. Christian Harris did not have a great rep either on that touchdown, but both of them weren't really where they were supposed to be, and it was a pretty easy touchdown for Hill. And then the third one, I think, was kind of a, a similar situation where like it was Stingley on the goal line and couldn't really make any contact with the runner. So in pass protection and down on the goal line, I thought they were really targeting him in the run game. And uh, yeah, just a pretty ugly performance all the way around. He had the one, he had some good reps like on Odell, like you said, um, but. Overall, I was I was pretty underwhelmed, which was yeah. You put him up against a guy who's got some burst off the snap, and he is gonna be in in trouble, right? We're talking about him here as hey, can he can he hang for these twenty reps in press man? Yeah, I think maybe he can, but that's up against as we said an older player, and up against Rashad Bateman too, who isn't exactly terrifying a defense. No. So it's like pretty concerning. I mean, he wants to be Richard Sherman. That's the archetype of like what his frame is and kind of the place how he wants to. To play as and we just don't run the systems anymore like we're, we're not in that phase of the league anymore no. maybe he comes along in eight years time or he came along eight years earlier we'd be talking about a different player but i also think that what you're talking about like the intuition the instincts off the ball intuition just within the play if he's not dropping to a spot or just chasing someone it's it's just the light isn't there yeah yeah so that could that could, that could be a pretty big problem when you're <laughs> number when you're number three or four overall pick is isn't performing the way that you want um I don't know if I have too much oh the too much else on Baltimore's offense versus Houston's defense. I forgot for a second that there's a whole nother side of the ball to talk about. CJ Stroud's debut. Um I thought it was a pretty vanilla game plan and offense to watch uh from from Slowick and the and the Houston offense. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I thought it was like all of the staples the Niners ran last year. They had some of the old McDaniel stuff in from the year prior and what he's taken to Miami, which I think is pretty interesting. Some of the short motion stuff, some of the, the jet into wheel stuff that's becoming pretty in vogue across the league. That was fun to see. I, Stroud did impress me. I thought he played at NFL speed and he had mm-hmm. a kind of like NFL figure it outness. Like, oh, this is going really wrong in 1.5 seconds. I got to figure it out. That's my job. Otherwise, I get hit. Um, so that was impressive because the rest of the thing around him just too often disintegrated. The line was awful. Communication yep. was awful. And as you said, they weren't exactly running really complex, interesting designs to kind of spring people open. It was a lot of stopping routes. It was a lot of, we're going to throw to zone. You throw it to a landmark, and we'll run underneath it. And when he was throwing outside the numbers to the perimeter, to the intermediate section, and it was anticipation and timing, I thought he looked really good. And then he mm-hmm. had some cool off-schedule plays too. So that seems to be the base of where they want to get to, right? It's like a cool dynamic run game. We can do all the cool play action stuff that the best offenses do in the league. And we have this kind of rhythm and anticipation side of our game outside the numbers it's just whether they'll ever have enough explosivity down the field and whether the line can hold up enough for him to kind of sit and pick you apart in the intermediate level where he had some real good flashes in that game whilst bodies were all around him and the pocket was really muddy but it's just unfair to ask a rookie to say hey eight nine ten eleven times a game Dakos down the field you know just dice people up our intermediate level layering the ball he can give you three a game at this stage in his career probably to get eight nine ten is just asking too much yeah, yeah. It, it's tough against a defensive coordinator that's just so creative. Um, you know, they come out and, and you expect Kyle Hamilton to be in the box. He's up high. Like, there's a lot of multiplicity. Like, it, it was a tough environment. And I, I do think that I agree that he, he did a good job. Definitely better than, than Bryce. Maybe not, like, on Richardson's level, I would probably say. So, yeah, uh, definitely a promising debut from him. The only nits I really had to pick about the performance was sometimes I thought the movement in the pocket was a little confusing to me. Like there was a play 
where Kyle Hamilton came off the edge and Michael Pierce was unblocked, which is a rough situation to be in for any quarterback, but he kind of ran the wrong way and then had to run the other way. And <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, gotta, gotta kind of move a different direction here. Uh, but he, he looked panicky at times. He did. And, it's, and, and, and to your point, like you said, the thing that he's dealing with that is so unusual that he's not going to see a lot is they are bouncing in and out on both sides, right? They are dropping guys down then bouncing them out and they're blitzing in the front. Then on the back end, they're rotating. They're rotating against the movement up front. It's like, hang on, did like seven guys just move in sync and I have to figure this out and oh, Michael Pierce is in my face. It's like, that is just an awful lot to put on a young guy at the best of times. And then to drop him like, not the mother load of the playbook, because as we said, it was pretty slim in terms of the concepts, but it's like quite heady concepts. It's a lot of different stuff than he's ever done before. It's an awful lot of thinking for someone to have to do. So that was the thing with me, like the clock looked correct, even if the movements weren't right. To develop that, yeah, the stick slide mm -hmm. climb throw. That's what I always call it. That is the NFL throw. Joe Burrow's the master. Tom Brady was the creator. The drop it, stick it. You just have to move. You, you just have to move ever so slightly to throw up Astros' radar off. You don't have to break out and try and make a play every right. single time or panic. That, I think, comes over time with just like trusting the rhythm of the concept. And that did stand out to me that he was letting the thing fly, partly because of the pressure, but partly because he just got it and he knew where the ball needed to go really quickly. That would be the most encouraging thing if I was a Texans fan. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was it was a bit of a I, I saw some backup offensive linemen in there too, like the center Juice Scruggs is not out there. Um, the left guard, it wasn't Green. Was he hurt or did he get benched after last year? Uh, well, I, th I think like aren't all three of them hurt up front? Like they had like they poured they poured all these resources into it, and they were like, "Hey, look how great it's gonna be. We got we we bought the resource in the offensive line. We got the rookie quarterback, and then like through training camp, they're like, oh great, <laughs> everyone's hurt.'" I know that's been the most brutal part. I think of watching the Texans over the last two years is that they poured so like Tunsil gets a big extension, Titus Howard gets a big extension, they draft Scruggs, they draft Green, and it just has not been a good line for, for two seasons now. And it's like, that's supposed to be their big building block. That's the identity of the offense and everything goes from there. And it just has not materialized yet. So I'm hoping that that looks a little bit better um, in the year, in the, in the weeks to come. I thought Damian Pierce obviously ran really hard and looked pretty, he always looks special to me. I, I, I know that he is not efficient. was at the bottom of all the metrics last year and last game was, only at three and a half yards of Kirk carry, but it seems like they want to feature him pretty heavily in this offense, and I really get why when I when I watch him run, just contorting his body and, and running with power. Like I, I don't know how you rate Damian Pierce, but I like him. I think he can be a really good system back for you. It's just, you know, th those guys flow as the offensive line flows. It's unfair, mm -hmm. as, as with Stroud, to ask him to, like, just magically be Brees Hall overnight. It's just not going to happen. Those guys have to get off and put a dent in the defense, and they just don't have the, the horses right now. Mm -hmm. Moving to the Baltimore defense, um, the the number one concern, maybe besides Marlon Humphrey's injury and the, the depth in the secondary, was the pass rush. You know, they've got all these studs on defense in the secondary, when it, well, whether it's Hamilton or, or Humphrey, like I said, or, or the safeties, but... Roquan too, but on that defensive line, there's no real one A star. But they had a bunch of young players away. You know, Ajabo. Um, they drafted Travis Jones last year, so maybe one of them breaks out. Did you think anybody flashed on that Ravens defensive line that could maybe give them some hope for a better pressure rate than last season? Not particularly, and this is my big like long-term concern for them. I know Awe finished with seven total pressures or whatever, but a lot of those were unblocked, which is mm -hmm. like, he almost shouldn't even be counted as a total pressure. I didn't look up how many he had versus like a true set or I didn't chart it myself. Um, you know, they, they seem, they've put those resources in, like you said, but they seem to just be deciding as an organization. We have Mike McDonald. Like the old school notion that you win with a four-man rush is still true. You have to just hit a certain threshold with a four-man rush to win the Super Bowl. That is just a fact, unless you have Patrick Mahomes. That is the only <laughs> thing that seems to like break the theory, right? And they've decided, well, we can get there with Sims, with re-blitzes, with zone pressures. That's still four, which is true. And they are as good as anyone, as creative as anyone in that world because of how they kind of marry it to the back end it's pretty special so yeah i buy that theory with them but i'm just a little bit old school in the sense of like i still think when it's third and seven 
there's only so much you can do. When it's second and eight, there is only so much you can do in a playoff game against a Joe yep. Burrow, against a Mahomes, against a Herbert. There is only so much you can do in the Simmons own pressure world before it's like someone needs to get off and win. And you four guys together as a unit need to get off and win. And even if they didn't have the 1A stud, they would need to have a real cohesive sense to the four-man group for me. Whereas I just think all those guys top out at 60 pressures. I don't see a 100 pressure guy anyway. I see maybe two guys who could get 40, 50, 60 in OA and, and Adafe. Uh, that to me is just not going to be good enough to cut it when you're in a postseason run. I just, I'd have to see it. It's, it's almost like the three-point shot in a way. I feel like Charles mm -hmm. Barkley. It's like, you'd have to show me you can sim pressure your way to the title. I watched Spags try to do it last year. He got completely cut apart, right? It's like, yeah, I, right. I, I just have to see it to believe it that you can sim your way to a title without like a complete stud or like four, you know, the, the old Giants teams. I know they had Strahan and and um, uh, Yuma but you'd have to have like a really complimentary four-man group like the Seattle teams with Bennett and Averill where you don't have a Hall of Famer necessarily, but the four of them complement each other so well in the rush plan and, and that I don't quite see with them. Yeah, they got a lot of pressure because of miscommunications from the Texans offensive line rollouts where Stroud held the ball and someone chased him down from the backside. But there were a couple reps where they would scheme something up where it was a Jabo one-on-one with a tackle and he would get locked up. Or it was a straight drop back, there was no sim, and Clowney and a Jabo or a Clowney and Owe. And they were playing good tackles, and, and a Jabo obviously is quite young, but you know, locked up a little bit. I was hoping to see a little bit more from that edge rush group. I didn't see elite push. I didn't see anybody who had elite moves. I didn't see anybody, you know, who could like torch someone around the shoulder. Although some guys are maybe capable of doing that, especially, you, you know, you'd hope a Jabo. But uh, yeah, I, I thought most of their juice came from the interior of the defensive line. Yeah. And, you know, they're built really well up the spine. But both the corners and, you know, the edge play, you know, could, could sink the season for... For, for for Baltimore it's just you know yeah. you get a rookie quarterback you know they're not going to be torching the <laughs> yeah and Madawiki's awesome as we said they had all mm -hmm. the injuries they've got all new pieces inside so Madawiki should wreck shop in week one it's like you've mm -hmm. been here forever you got to get off an attack it's like you don't have a you know a lot of stuff to do you <laughs> know so you should be yeah. great in week one Ajabo is the one a job mm -hmm. is a wild card. I, I just think uh, Owe is like a real average player who's going to have some good weeks and some bad weeks, and he's going to get, you know, the pressure plan is going to have to create him pressures. I don't think he's going to win a one-on-one -on -one matchup for you in the playoffs. And we're talking about winning in the playoffs. That's what the team's expectation should be. Mm -hmm. They can get through the through the regular season, I think, okay. A job is the one with the tools. Even if the guy doesn't quite understand where he's going, what he's doing, all that kind of stuff, he's coming back off the injury, maybe he's not right back to the, the top, top level. But if you look through the smallest the sample sizes last year the smallest of sample sizes when he was back at the end he did have against true pass sets a pressure rate that would put him up there with just below the top tier so that to me is like the whole thing he's the one guy as he did at michigan and i know he was opposite aiden hutchinson where he's just got the tools in the package where he could put good tackles in a bind for one game where I could see him having like a monster playoff outing just with the, the tools. And maybe it doesn't have to be the consistency week to week you're looking for. You can sim your way through those weeks. You can pressure your way through those weeks and just hope that he has three or four games a year that are like, oh, it all comes together for the week and we can get something out of it. He is the guy that they, they need to, 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 to look to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know how much more I have to say about this game. That's the offense defense for both teams. Um, overview, like, what were your expectations for the for the Baltimore Ravens before Week One? Did anything change? I, nothing really changed for me watching these. Teams. No, nothing. Nothing changed for me. I th I thought the offense would be a, would click a little more. I had such faith in them as like communicators, and I, I just love that tandem together. I was a little bit concerned about that maybe, but I think it will get ironed out and be okay. It's just the injuries with them, right? It's like. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like injuries, like, oh, they've got six, seven, nine injuries. It's like our blue chippers are going down all over the place. And it, yep. it just completely changes what we can run. We can't be as flexible on the back end, which is our calling card without blue chippers. We can't run the true power spread if our, if our tackle and center are down. That kind of is an end game for what we want to do. So that, that is like a major, major concern. But it's just injury luck. Yeah, and they, did, they certainly didn't build out a team that... <laughs> can stay healthy and that's you know why i think they're always destined to be good regular season team but probably just won't have the juice come playoff time and that's that was my thought going into it and week one you already started to see that and you know the browns defense looks great this division is going to be tough for for baltimore to win or, or even you know second place in so 
yeah, kind of kind of scary for for them a little bit, even though it was a win. Um, I, I think they're good. I think they'll be fun to watch. But yeah, a little scary for them in terms of like, are we Super Bowl contenders in this game? So, and then the, I, I thought Houston, you know, week one of Stroud's long career, like looked all right. So you can feel pretty good about it. And I thought the defense looked way better than last year. It went from unwatchable to competent, which is about the biggest, the second biggest leap you can make from competent to elite. So yeah, uh, that is that game. 25 to 9, but still a lot to talk about, so that's good. And next, I want to talk about what could be the worst game of next week. We'll get on top of it early and preview Eagles versus Vikings. First thing I want to talk about, I want to talk about the Vikings defense and Brian Flores. It looks so bad on paper. Viking fans are hoping that Brian Flores can scheme his way to something competent. Uh, didn't get completely torched by the Bucks, but still lost the game. Is there any way that they can slow down the Eagles' offense? Any strategies that you think Flores has up his sleeve that could make a dent in, in the Eagles' passing attack? It's really hard. You know, what happened with the Patriots last week was so distinctive to the Patriots in terms right. of how they're able to mix and match coverage on the back end. They just whooped them up front, which is, like, unheard of against that Eagles offensive yeah. line. The, the Patriots run, like, 20 deep with players everyone would want to start for them. That's unusual. They can run any combination of coverage, pressure, personnel grouping you want. They can match up with anyone in the league. It's, it's a real special group the Patriots have put together. That is not the case in Minnesota. No. Uh, and I've been saying this all offseason, you know, for them to be even like close to competent, Brian Flores would have to have a personality transplant. And, uh, you know, just the, the style of defense, I'm not talking about him off the field, though maybe some of that too, but, you know, the, the volume of the pressures, the style of the pressures, they, they require such specific communication. It's all winks and nods. It's no, There's no call signs. There's no words. It's like you got to read it on the fly like we're running some deep-breaking option route, and you got to hope that all 11 guys are in sync together or at least the seven packed in the middle and that you've got a great deep free safety and two great cornerbacks. That is literally what the system is predicated on. They don't have that. Now, to be fair to him, last week he was like, look, I can't kick my habit to pressure it's just yes. not gonna happen i'm not changing my entire personality still what was it 52 percent of the time he blitz or something <laughs> can't help himself he just loves it loves but they it. they did do it from a too high shell last week yep. it was just yep. like let me get depth in the back in the defensive backfield let me pressure and if i get torched in the middle of field you know i get torched in the middle of field i'll live to play another down and i'm betting on turnovers right I'm gonna move a little bit more on the back end than usual gonna send the heat and i'm betting on three turnovers a game and if i get three turnovers a game out of this group we're gonna win some games people don't expect us to do now the specifics of how you can slow the eagles down we could get into that and we could have probably like a great five-hour game planning conversation because <laughs> i've thought about it non-stop for like a year <laughs> Well, I'll just boil it down for the listeners, not bought them too much. <laughs> they just don't have the pieces. You need really specific body types, and they just don't have those guys, let alone, like, if it's one-on-one, -on -one, third and eight, we're running cover one. It's like, who is playing corner for us and who is playing receiver for them? We've only got two games to talk about, so if you what, what body <laughs> types are you talking about here? What, what I think the most effective game plan that's played against the Eagles offense, outside of what the Patriots did, which is a completely unique situation. One, you're dealing with, as I said, all, all the multiplicity they have in terms of personnel and coverage. Safeties, yeah, yeah. Who are the whole works. And they just so happen to have, you know, a Hall of Fame coach who's crafted the greatest game plans of, our, of you know, anyone's lifetime, yeah, <laughs> running right, and calling right. the thing. So that is an almost unique situation. As I said, they just beat them up inside, which is so unusual, and got the Eagles out of their rhythm, right? The offense in the first half look nothing like the offense in the second half the eagles entire offense is built around layering the concepts it is we go run into rpo into play action shot that's what we do and then we go into our drop back game and we stretch the field so much that every yard is in so much danger and all five linemen can pull a move and jalen can move with the ball that there's not a blade of grass that's not in trouble from every concept on every down with all of our three options or four options okay so that is just like the impossible situation. The only team that has had a sniff against them really conceptually outside of beating them up as the Patriots did 
was the Jags last season where they were able to kind of mess with the numbers game with their overhang defender using box in box out type stuff bouncing and moving guys out rolling the back end really extremely and basically saying we're gonna show so much movement at all three levels that you're not going to know who to read and in doing that we can muddy the read in the run game we can muddy the read on the RPO and then we're gonna just bet like hell that our guys have the game of their lives on the back end right that was what they did the problem with doing that and having what they call an apex over down someone who is sat right between the corridor of your tackle and your slot receiver so he's not covering anyone he's not over the tackle he stood in the middle he's daring you to come into the middle of the field where he can pick you up and what they would do was slowly walk him down to the line of scrimmage so jalen hurts is thinking oh wait i was thinking he was out the box now he's in the box now he's actually on the, the end man on the line of scrimmage how am i supposed to read this and they would try and put a delay in his uh, processing and then the back end they would roll the coverage essentially so when he looks up he's like oh that's moved as well so everything's just moving so much at the snap the problem with running that style is you end up just by the structure of the defense putting the slot receiver one-on-one -on -one with your safety in what is essentially man coverage even if you're rolling 15 yards off the ball right so yeah. And that is often A.J. Brown or it's Devonta Smith, right? So good luck with that. And that was Andre Sisco, by the way, when the Jags did it. And somehow they were able to get away with it a little bit and they still got hurt. Steve Spagnuolo ran this exact game plan in the Super Bowl. He said, oh, that's a really good idea, Mike Caldwell. Let me give this a shot. And they got absolutely roasted <laughs> over and over again because they are in man coverage 15 yards off the ball. So that is the only structural way, I believe, to have a chance against the thing unless you have special players at all three levels. And I just don't think that they have a Trayvon Walker, Devin Lloyd, movable type at the second level. And then the safeties being 15 yards off the ball in man coverage would terrify me. Yeah, I mean, we saw that in the in the Bucks game for the Vikings last week. It was number 44 on Mike Evans, a couple yards off, or not a couple, a dozen yards off the ball. Yeah. Mike Evans torched him for a touchdown. So maybe this is the week we see Lewis seen. I don't know, but yeah. he's buried on the depth chart. So obviously there's something wrong with him, you know, whether he's not ready or or whatever but yeah he's he's a piece that could be a huge help for them if they want to go for that but you know he's buried on the depth chart so yeah it's it's probably not going to go super well for the uh the minnesota vikings on defense on offense maybe they've got a, a chance you know that's where the firepower for the for the vikings are you've got justin jefferson 150 yards casually last week jordan addison caught a huge touchdown as well um, TJ Hawkinson was targeted a bunch of underneath, couldn't really break anything, but obviously he's a threat as well. The Vikings have a bunch of new starters in that defense, the safeties, the linebackers, uh, the defensive tackle. It's all new. Uh, did, did it look exploitable, though, week one, do you think? Um, I, yeah, I th they had major communications, the Eagles, on defense last week, particularly against bunch formations. Almost every good second-half play from the Patriots came from a bunch formation, often motioning into it kind of late in the snap because they could tell these guys aren't communicating well. And it was, wasn't even necessarily the spine of the defense, so they did get ripped apart. Cunningham had no idea where he was supposed to be half the time, and that's not his fault. He's not been there very long. So he's like, hey, guys, what's our checks? I forgot. That's totally understandable. Blankenship, you know, he's just not that kind of players like oh, i don't know where i'm supposed to be either half the time like that's just the reality of the situation but what was more concerning frankly was darius slay and avanti maddox were looking at each other being like who are we supposed to take and like darius slay to me is like a genius and yeah. is the prototype of what you want in the league right now play inside play outside play up play off that's that's why he's been so great for them maddox and him i mean there was about four reps in the fourth quarter alone where they're covering the same guy staring at each other being like what are you doing here so that, that, that there are real concerns, I think, for them in who is kind of taking control of the communication on the back end. And it was less so like when the Pats just lined up and ran a play, things were okay. When there was movement, and particularly late in the in the rep, they looked like they had no idea where they were supposed to be. And so I think that front, which was a, little, a concern, I think I'm worried about the linebackers over the course of the season, obviously, and then N'Kobe Dean gets injured. The two guys up front, I think one is really special. One can be a rotational player, but they're so young, it feels like a lot of pressure to bond those guys. Mm -hmm. I am more concerned now than I was before and about that safety situation, their interplay with the cornerbacks they, they just looked so off with each other showing help one way james bradbury on the touchdown he shows he's like oh i've got inside help no worry we're running you know cover one robber he looks around he's like where's the safety and it's yeah, just a huge yeah. strike for a touchdown yeah yeah i was the eagles defense was a unit i was a bit concerned about before this season because of all the new pieces and because there's just really not a lot of players in their prime although it didn't look like 
I mean, Slay had some incredible plays. There is a play that he said on Twitter was the best of his career where he, you know, baited the quarterback by ruining his outside leverage going inside and then flipping his hips and running and breaking up the pass. So, like, I'm not concerned about the athleticism there, but, yeah, you're right. It's a lot of new pieces. Can they just trade for TJ Edwards back? He looks so terrible in Chicago. It's like, can we just undo this? Like. (laughs) I'm sure Chicago is thinking the same thing. Like, we spent how much on bad linebackers? (laughs) (laughs) Just undo it. Like, let's let's get rid of it so we can see. So, like, it'll be better for both teams. Um, (laughs) Is there anything different about Minnesota? The offense added another receiver, but the interior of the offensive line is still the exact same. Kirk Cousins is still Kirk Cousins. You know, Jefferson is still Jefferson. They they added Addison. How much more juice do you think that adds to the to the offense? It should add a lot. I got to say, this isn't granular, I'd, I guess, but it was one thing that really stuck out to me that I found very frustrating going back through watching the film. I'm not sure if you picked up on this either. I find the deployment of Addison slightly odd. You know, I know he was basically KJ Osborne's the second guy, right? Addison has become the third guy and they wanted to get heavy and, you know, run the ball and get mm-hmm. play action stuff. And I understand that. But it seemed like they wanted to have Whenever they're in dropback game, Addison's on one side of the field, Jefferson's on the other side of the field. And I get that. That is like normal, common, right? Standard pro football. We want to have, we just want to run good offense with two premium players. And then we've mm-hmm. got options. It gives us, you know, a 360 view or 180 view of the, the field. And we've got Kirk Cousins. He knows where he's supposed to go with the ball. One of them hopefully pops open. And there are examples um, late in the game or late in the second quarter where they're both just wide open for like three straight plays because they're good players and they're going to get wide yeah. open. But I, I I go back to when O'Connell was with the Rams and when they had Odell and Cup and the way that they would use those two in tandem and the interplay of the two together, particularly they would use a bunch of stack formations. And this happened with LA when they had Robert Woods and Cup too. We're going to put them both in the stack. We'll flip-flop who's at the top and who's at the four. And it's just going to give people a nightmare because they're like, well, how much do we commit to the stack if it's bunch how much do we commit to the bunch and then we have the one guy on the other side is he a good player is he not a good player do we have to shade over to him so it just gives people massive binds with how they would play off each other and when you watch this game they're both on either side of the formation they ran three plays together four plays together i should say in the drop back game lined up next to each other right mm-hmm. so not wheeling into a motion which they, they did once early in the game the first time they do it theo the first time i'm watching it going this is interesting they're not lined up together that's unusual i thought he'd do the thing he did with odell and cooper in la he's game that was his passing game right they were in the gun all the time and they, they were lined up together the very first the time touchdown? they do it yeah it is the touchdown theo <laughs> so much a, attention to jefferson just wide open over the top just panic yeah. it's like oh god those are two good players one goes inside one one goes outside one runs the post it's like oh i'm gonna bite on jefferson boom post shot touchdown the yep. next time they do it they try to bluff a screen the other way they almost pop it for a big play the next time they do it it's a big chunk to addison for 15 yards the final time they do it, it's in the low red zone madison scores a touchdown because everyone's scared of those two guys together it's like what more evidence do you need you basically <laughs> scored two touchdowns something like 70 yards on four plays when the guys they weren't running anything special they just lined up together yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, they should do more of that if, if, yeah. it's, if it's averaging 20 yards a pop. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that that's a pretty good strategy. It's week one, so, you know, I'm sure that they looked at and charted it and, and you know, that's that's analytics in the league. But, it's but not... that, that that is like a philosophical thing, though. So okay. that's why I'm thinking about it. It's like you wouldn't do that. You know, you you would see the first one pop and be like, we should run that again. Or run yeah. a similar switch concept, right? V- very soon on to see how, because you would want to test how are they going to deal with it, because then we'll know, right? That that's just a philosophical thing. Like I said, I think they just want to run good offense with two great players. That is the norm in the league. You don't right. want to put your guys next to each other. I get it. When you're running three by one, you want to have one great player in the three and your best player in the one because then they're terrified. So I understand that. But the way that he moved things along in LA and the way other teams have replicated, I was just so surprised that like. This is the guy who did this, and all of a sudden he's abandoning it when he's running the show. I thought that was a little bit confusing. Yeah, yeah, that is. I mean, it was so effective when they did it, and you can totally see the gravity of Jefferson on that touchdown. It's awesome to watch. Like, ever, it's it's an oh shit player. Like, there's. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've heard you say. I don't know if I picked that up from you or whoever said it, but like the oh Tyreek is the ultimate one that opens up so much for other people, but Jefferson as well. Yeah, definitely want those two. If you're reading that, the oh shit player, you want 
you don't want to abandon him like in your reads because yeah. he just adds yeah he, he manipulates the defense so much but it can only be to one side it's like you know i watched miami just before i watched them and they're running all the switch the thing crazy thing about miami that i've realized that didn't compete with me till this morning was they're running elongated switch release concepts that should probably take three seconds which is a long time in the nfl drop back game right but oh, they yeah. get to them in 2.2 seconds because they've got the two quickest players walking the earth right so mm -hmm. it's like oh we can run the most complicated difficult to defend things in the league with our two quickest players at a time at a speed no one else can do it so that if they have committed to saying we want our two guys working together we want mm -hmm. them moving as like, you know, a NASCAR, which way are they going? Because everyone is so terrified. And if you whiff on one, we only need you to whiff on one and it's a home run shot. So I, I, I just think that more teams and particularly them, because they've got Jefferson, it's not like it is Brown and Smith who are both outstanding. I think Brown is incredible, but Jefferson is quite literally the best player in the league, right? If you just go trait for trait, talent for talent at position, it's him or Bosa probably or Fred Warner. Like that they are, he is the best Mahomes, obviously, but like there's just no mm -hmm. one better than him at anything at his position, right? Literally any part of the game. There's no one better than him than that. Maybe straight line speed Tyree. So if yeah. you've got that player and you can pair him with your new first round pick, it's like, why would you not use that more than having them separated and Kirk's got to go from one side to the other with, as you were saying earlier, like a crappy offensive line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jalen Carter is going to get get after it. I don't even think it matters what they do up front. Like there's going to be pressure. They've got to they've got to find some answers in the receiving game and, and break off some explosives because it's not happening in the running game. <laughs> and Oliver is going to get put on a milk carton after this. He's going to get get obliterated from the earth, go to the nether. Like that's what's going to happen. So yeah, uh, that's basically their only shot is 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 as many explosive plays as possible as quickly as possible. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best way to do it. So we we will see. Uh, one guy, one more guy I want to talk about. I liked Josh Oliver. He was someone that I, I think is one of the more underrated players in the league. He, he made an impact, like really good blocker, and and was able to to be a receiving threat as well. Um, yeah, it's a it's a really high powered offensive attack or attack, or it could be so. I'd like to see that more fully realized. I'd like to see them beat the Buccaneers. I'd like to see them, you know, make it a, at least a shootout versus the Eagles, even if they end up losing. I, I think it can happen, but I, I don't know if the, the they score more points at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's, it's a weird one, right? Because they've got this, like, all-out pressure defensive coach. O'Connell, when he kind of made his dramatic switch at L.A., was... We're going to be an empty like 22% of the time. We can't run the ball. We can't answer defenses this way. We want to make everyone as static as possible on the back end. Best way to do that, to reveal pressure. If you don't have an off-script creator, you got to be an empty 20% of the time. They're all moving so much. They're pressuring so much. The only way to hold that back and say they can't rotate as much, they got to give us their tells. We'll know their checks. It's to just get into empty. Let your let your quarterback point guard down the field. And I think Kirk Cousins is good enough to point guard you down the field over and over oh, yeah. again. So it's like... Why would you not do? Why are they getting into these congested tight sets? I get they've got Hawkinson, they got Oliver, whatever. It's like, yes, yeah, split those guys out, get him yeah. big, force him to stay in base, and split out. It's, it doesn't seem that difficult to me. And this is the guy who did it. So it was just quite confusing to me that they were so obsessed with like we're putting the fullback on the field, we're putting three tight ends on the field. We want to hammer them with the run, and then we're gonna boot off it. It's like, hey guys, we did that two years ago. These guys have solved this stuff. This is why everyone's like, why was the this, you know league down in scoring this year? There was wasn't a touchdown for like an hour on red zone. It's like because these guys figured it out because they all get paid a ton of money and they're really clever. Yeah, and you got rid of Dalvin Cook. Like, why are you transitioning to a run heavy thing? Like. <laughs> You're, you've got Alexander Madison back there, man. Like, either unleash Ty Shan Chandler and reveal him as a top 10 back in the league or, or don't do it at all because you're going to be in shootouts. Like, your defense is terrible. Air it out. It's the only, only way. And you're built to do it. So, yeah, a little bit of a strange game plan from from kevin o'connell yeah one that one that just the whole vikings offseason didn't make much sense to me I, no. I think they've got a chance to be really really bad um <laughs> really bad but we'll see how it goes 
And you can just see them deciding like, oh, we think the weak point is the interior, the defense, all three levels, not up to scratch of what the Eagles were in the past, even though Carter's amazing. Don't worry, we'll double him out the game. We'll find ways to get down blocks. Don't worry about it. We'll run the ball down their throats and that just won't work. <laughs> and then they're going to be left in third and long against the most prolific pass rush in the NFL. It's like, yeah. okay, good luck with that, Kevin. You got to spread them out and just be like, we are going for this, right? Is we are going to take some shots early in the game. Even if we get lit up on the back end, as I said earlier, Brian Flores' whole season is like, if I can get two or three turnovers, I've done my job for the week. We just want to make them make two or three mistakes. We know we're going to get roasted. And can we drop 35 on the board and then just hope for the best? Yep. Yeah, can't do that with Alexander Madison. But <laughs> I think that's that's been about an hour. That's a good point to stop at, I think, for, for two games. Thank you so much, Ollie, for, for coming on and, and debuting this podcast. Uh, Next week, we got QB class Derek Klassen on the show. We'll be talking about probably Bears Buccaneers, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's already getting way harder. Todd Munkin and CJ Stroud, like this was exciting. Uh, there are a couple other games I could have cho chosen from, but I thought that that one was probably the one that got the least amount of attention and was the most interesting. We'll see what it is next week. I'm I might change my standards on like what the worst game is. Is it forty to zero? Is it twenty-five to nine? Is it thirteen to sixteen? Who knows what it could be? So, we'll see. Thank you all for listening to the debut episode, Ali. Thank you again for coming on. Uh, do you have anything to plug? No, people can just go to the read optional. Everything is there. Podcast writing, far, far too many words. Just like this podcast, frankly, far, far too many words on topics <laughs> that you might not think you're interested in. But give it a chance because you might be interested in them by the end. Hey, if you made it to the end of this episode, everyone should be very, very interested <laughs> in things like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the best football content out there, I think. The Home and Home podcast with, with Ollie and John Ledyard is a must listen. Um, there are things like this where it's 10,000 words on the Patriots offense, but uh, I, I also think that you do a good job like key like power rankings or you know free agent winners and losers stuff like that that you might find on NFL network like lists and rankings and things like that but with the level of analysis that you've heard here today it's 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 really good stuff so subscribe to the read optional read Ollie's work please and uh, that's all I got thanks for having me thanks for coming on